Good evening, Night Church. My name is James, and I'm going to be leading us through our Bible reading tonight. And as mentioned, we're going to be reading from the book of Zechariah, and we'll be reading from chapter 9. A prophecy. The word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and will come to rest on Damascus. For the eyes of all people and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord, and on Hamath too, which borders on it, and on Tyre and Sidon, though they are very skillful. Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She has heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt of the streets. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea, and she will be consumed by fire. Ashkelon will see it and fear. Gaza will writhe in agony, and Ekron too, for her hope will wither. Gaza will lose her king, and Ashkelon will be deserted. A mongrel people will occupy Ashdod, and I will put an end to the pride of the Philistines. I will take the blood from their mouths, the forbidden food from between their teeth. Those who are left will belong to our God and become a clan in Judah, and Ekron will be like the Jebusites. But I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, Zion, against your sons, Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south, and the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. Thanks for reading for us, James. And uh, if you've got a Bible there uh, yourself, you might find it helpful to uh, have it open. I'm going to be flipping around a bit tonight, so uh, you can uh, get a bit of uh, practice at flipping your Bible pages or uh, using your app uh, on your phone, if that's what you're doing. And now, uh, this week, uh, I found out a historical fact that I didn't know before, and that is the largest empire ever established by a single person. Now, I think if you'd probably asked me before this week, I might have had a guess at uh, Alexander the Great, Alexander the Great. Uh, but that's not true. Uh, that is not the largest empire ever established by a single person. The largest empire ever established by a single person is, in fact, the Mongolian Empire, established by Genghis Khan 
uh, in uh, the year 1206. Uh, in 1206, uh, in fact, he became emperor and his empire was that little orange bit that you can see there. Uh, only he was really just a, a tribal chieftain. And within 21 years, by the year 1227, uh, he had made his empire uh, as big as the rest of that yellow part on the map there. Uh, he had expanded his empire from this small group of tribes, uh, so it stretched right across China, uh, right into the Middle East. And then uh, during the 50 years after his death, uh, his descendants went on to grow it even more uh, so that it became the largest ever land-based empire in the history of the world and the second largest uh, empire overall, uh, the British Empire in 700 years later. The, the British Empire uh, grew a little bit bigger than that, but of course, you know, well, we were, Australia was part of the British Empire, so it wasn't all joined together like uh, the, uh, the Mongolian Empire was. But how did uh, Genghis Khan grow this giant empire from this tiny group of tribes that he started out with? Well, let me read to you uh, something that Genghis Khan is reported to have said. The greatest happiness is to vanquish your enemies, to chase them before you, to rob them of their wealth, to see those dear to them bathed in tears, to clasp to your bosom their wives and daughters. Uh, nice sounding character, isn't he? Uh, Genghis Khan, he was known as a fierce, brutal ruler, and that is the way of empires in this world. All human empires are founded on power and might and the ability to force your enemies to do what you want them to, uh, even if they don't want to do that. But in spite of this incredibly uh, uh, impressive empire that Genghis Khan was able to found. Uh, in fact, it wasn't as big as he wanted it to be. Uh, his last words to his sons were, with heaven's aid I have conquered for you a huge empire, but my life was too short to achieve the conquest of the world. That is left for you. Now, as you can see the map there, the, the sons did have a bit of a shot and they managed to expand the empire a little bit, uh, but they were never able to conquer the whole world. But in the book of Zechariah that we're looking at tonight, there is a kingdom that is prophesied that will stretch right across the whole earth. Uh, we see the, uh, the vision of this empire, that, or this, uh, uh, this kingdom uh, that is prophesied in Zechariah chapter 14 and verses 6 to 9. Zechariah chapter 14, uh, right at the, the end of the book, uh, we, we see the, the full vision of what God is going to do. On that day, there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it to the east, to the Dead Sea, and half of it to the west, to the Mediterranean Sea, in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be only one, there will be one Lord, and his name the only name. According to Zechariah, God's ultimate plan is that there's going to be one kingdom, the Lord's kingdom, that is going to stretch across every single square meter of our world. There's not going to be a single place from north to south, uh, from east to west, that is not part of the rule of God's kingdom. 
And this kingdom uh, is uh, described in a beautiful way. God says it's going to be a kingdom of light and of life. It's going to be a kingdom where the light of God's righteousness shines out 24 hours a day, so there's no need for any sun anymore. Uh, It's going to be light from God all the time. And also the life-giving water of His presence is going to flow out into the kingdom uh, so that everyone can have it with them. This is God's ultimate plan. Now, if you've ever done much Bible reading, that idea of a kingdom where it's light all the time and where there's water flowing out from God's presence in the temple might sound a little bit familiar to you because that's exactly the way that the new creation is described at the very end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22 verse 1 says, An angel showed John uh, the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And then a couple of verses later, Revelation uh, verse 5, uh, John sees that there's going to be no more night in the new creation. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light. This vision of a new kingdom that is going to cover the whole earth, the Bible tells us that it is going to be fulfilled fully in the new creation. This glorious kingdom, it's actually not something that we're going to see here on this earth. Uh, This kingdom, it actually doesn't have anything to do with the events that are happening in Israel uh, at the moment. We tend to think that, isn't it? Because reading these prophets, it keeps talking about Israel and thinks, oh, is it talking about what's happening at the moment? But we see in Revelation is, no, no, this vision of a new kingdom that God is bringing in is uh, in, in the new creation. And that means that uh, we, like the people of Zechariah's time, still look forward to uh, fully experiencing this kingdom that God is going to bring. But unlike the people of Zechariah's day, uh, we can experience something of God's new kingdom. And what we're going to look at tonight from Zechariah is uh, the, the way that God is going to uh, establish this new kingdom Uh, Our sinful, messed up world, it doesn't really sound anything like the kingdom that Zechariah describes. Uh, But we're going to see how God is going to establish that kingdom, how he's going to take our sinful, messed up world and turn it into a kingdom of light and life, Uh, how he's going to take sinful, messed up people and prepare them to be part of this kingdom of light and life. Now, certainly the people of Zechariah's day were wondering how could God do something like that because they already had hopes of God's kingdom coming uh, to uh, being part of God, a glorious kingdom of God. But they weren't experiencing it. Uh, In their world, they were living under the uh, influence of the mighty Persian Empire uh, and they had to do what the Persians told them to do. And they were living in Jerusalem, but... Life was tough. Their temple that they had was broken down. It was still broken from uh, when the Babylonians had destroyed it 70 years before. Uh, And life was difficult. They weren't enjoying great peace or prosperity. Uh, They were enjoying, they were struggling with a difficult life. And they wondered where God was in the midst of all of that. But through Zechariah, God promises that he's going to send a special saviour. He's going to send an anointed saviour 
who will be equipped for the role of beginning God's new kingdom and uh, a kingdom that will cover the whole earth. And I want us to look at two images that we find in Zechariah that talk about that uh, symbolise the role of the promised saviour. Uh, so the first image that we're going to look at, and uh, it's a little bit of a strange image uh, for a king, but it is the image of a branch. Uh, God says that his promised saviour is going to be a branch. In fact, he talks about two branches we're going to see, and their branches are of an olive tree. I think maybe that gives us a little bit of a hint as to why God used this uh, image of a branch, uh, an olive branch. The idea was that it, it produces olive oil, and that olive oil could be used uh, for uh, cleansing, uh, it was in, in that day, and also it could be used as fuel to uh, to, um, for a lamp uh, that could be like a, a symbol, I guess, of, of life, uh, as the the lamp, the fire, the lamp um, was uh, was lit and fueled by the olive branches. And so, I think those are some of the images that uh, for why this king is going to be called a branch. But we want to have a look at three dreams that Zechariah had about his about this branch. And these three dreams are part of nine dreams that. Zachariah had in one night. Uh, it must have been a fairly exhausting night, actually. He would have needed his coffee the next morning uh, after you have nine dreams. Uh, but three of them are about this uh, branch saviour who is going to come and save God's people. So let's, uh, if you've got a Bible there, you might like to flick back to Zechariah chapter 3, and that's where we see the first vision about the branch. And uh, this vision is about the high priest of Zechariah's day, whose name is Joshua. Uh, Joshua, and uh, so in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 3, uh, it, this is what Zechariah sees. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. Joshua, uh, as the, the priest, the kind of representative of the people, is dressed in dirty clothes because the people are sinful. Uh, their, their, their hearts are not renewed. Uh, they're still rebellious in their hearts against God. They're still defiled by their sin. And so Joshua's dressed in these dirty clothes. Uh, he's sinful. But then in the vision, God comes along and takes off the dirty clothes and puts fresh, clean clothes on him. And according to uh, the angel, as he goes on to explain to Zechariah, uh, this is an image of what God is going to do uh, through his special servant, the branch, uh, for all the people of Israel, or all God's people. Uh, as we uh, read in verse 7, a few verses down, uh, this is what the Lord Almighty says, If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have a charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among those standing there. Listen, High Priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before me, uh, before you, who are men symbolic of things to come, I am going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I've set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on it, that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. 
just as Joshua was cleansed of his uh, dirty clothes, uh, God says, Joshua, you are a symbol of what is to come. You're a symbol of this branch. And when the branch comes, God says, I'll remove the sin of this land in a single day. Uh, God's promise is that his, uh, his uh, servant, his saviour, is going to come and remove the people's sin. And Zechariah actually speaks a bit more of this day of cleansing later in his prophecy, towards the end of the prophecy in chapter 13, uh, verse 1, Zechariah says, On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. God promises that uh, his, uh, when he sends a saviour to bring in his new kingdom, uh, he, that, that saviour will cleanse his people. Now, the problem throughout the Old Testament was the priests couldn't cleanse the people, not fully. They had to actually deal with their own sin because uh, they were sinful themselves. They were just ordinary human beings. And so uh, they couldn't actually deal with all the sins of all the people. And so uh, they couldn't uh, ultimately fix the problem of sin. But the branch who is coming, he is going to be a clean priest priest who uh, will bring in this fountain that will wash away the dirty, defiling, disfiguring sin in people's lives. So that's the first thing we see about the branch. Uh, In chapter 4, Zechariah has another dream. Uh, This time it's actually two uh, branches or trees uh, feeding olive oil down into uh, an an oil lamp uh, that provides uh, fuel for it to be a light. And chapter 4, verse 4, Zechariah asks an angel in his dream, he says, I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Zerubbabel, he was the second key leader of the people of Jerusalem. First one was Joshua, the high priest we've already met. Zerubbabel was the governor, uh, the descendant of David. Uh, He would have been the king, except that the Persian king Darius was the king, so uh, Zerubbabel only got to be a governor, uh, but he was the political leader. And the angel says, uh, part of what this uh, vision of the branches represents is that Zerubbabel is not going to be a leader like uh, Genghis Khan, a mighty or powerful military leader, but he's going to be a leader who is full of God's spirit. He's going to be a leader who can uh, lead people in trusting God and following him with wisdom and following him with the power of his spirit working in their hearts. Now, the reason there are two olive trees in this vision is to symbolize the fact that the people need both the priest who can cleanse them and the king, uh, spirit-filled king, who can lead them. Uh, In verse 12, Zechariah asks, What are these two olive branches beside the two golden pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. 
king and the priest. The people need both. They need a priest who can cleanse them. They need a king uh, who can lead them to live God's way. Now, the thing we see in the final vision that Zechariah has about the branch is that these two things, that the priest and the king are actually uh, one saviour. And uh, we see that in Zechariah chapter 6, where he has a a final vision about the the branch. Uh, The word of the Lord, Zechariah 6 chapter 9, the word of the Lord came to me, take silver and gold from the exile exiles Heldai, Tobijah and Jediah who have arrived in Babylon. Go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and the gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua, son of Josadak. Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch and he will branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty, and will sit and rule on his throne, and he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. Joshua the high priest, he's given uh, this golden crown because he symbolizes the priestly king. He is going to be the saviour who has a crown on his head and can lead the people but he's also a priest who can cleanse people. Now, when you think about a priestly king or a kingly priest, we know that God has been faithful to his promise to send this saviour into the world because he sent Jesus. Jesus is the saviour who is completely clean of himself so that he can cleanse others by offering himself as a sacrifice. Jesus is God's King who is totally full of His Spirit so that He can actually pour out that Spirit on others so that uh, they can follow Him and follow God from their hearts. In the book of Hebrews chapter 9, it talks about how Jesus uh, uh, has this role. It says, The blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then? Will the blood of Christ, through whom, through, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? Jesus is the perfect, spirit-filled king who offers himself to cleanse us from our sin. It's his blood that is in that fountain that Zechariah promised, that washes away our guilt and our shame. And sin really does need to be washed away. Sometimes we forget how ugly and dirty and defiling sin really is. Uh, Particularly uh, our culture doesn't like to think of uh, sin in that way. Uh, I was reading about the, uh, the actor and director Woody Allen uh, and uh, he was once asked if he thought that sex was dirty and uh, his reply was, uh, only if you're doing it right. Uh, it's kind of a witty answer, isn't it? Um, and uh, uh, obviously uh, not all sex is dirty and that, that's a wrong attitude in and of itself. But the kind of idea that... Uh, being dirty is fun, well, 
it, uh, it, it doesn't add up. Uh, if you know anything about Woody Allen, it came out later about his own sex life that it was pretty dirty and not in a, a fun way. Uh, he was having an affair with his 18-year-old stepdaughter. And that, that's the kind of thing that, that sin does. Uh, it's not just lust, uh, it's greed, uh, it's envy, uh, anger, impatience, pride, all kinds of sin. That They are dirty. They are ugly. They are disfiguring. Uh, when you've got sin in your life, it is like, uh, you know, you haven't had a shower and you're smelly and it's, it's not good for the people around you, is it, at all? They wreck, it wrecks relationships and it takes you, makes you less like the person that you were created to be. But Jesus has come to cleanse us. Jesus has come to wash us clean. He's come to wash us clean so that we can live the perfect lives that we were created for. There's an old hymn that says, There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That's what Jesus came to do, and it's only as we are washed clean that we can enter God's new kingdom. We can't cleanse ourselves. It's only those who've been washed clean by Jesus who can enter his kingdom now and who can be with him forever in that perfect new creation. I just want to say, if you've never been, uh, if you've never come to Jesus for cleansing, I want to encourage you to do that today. I want to encourage you to turn to Jesus. He is the only King uh, and Lord of your life who can wash away your sins and who can welcome you into uh, his kingdom of light and of life. So that's uh, what we see about the Saviour as we think about the branch and the vision that Zechariah had of the branch. The second thing that Zechariah tells us about the promised king, the second image that he gives us is the king on the donkey. And uh, we see that in the verses that James read for us in uh, Zechariah chapter 9. Uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This week, uh, I've been watching a new documentary about World War II, and uh, I think it was made fairly recently, but it was made from uh, old footage, uh, original footage uh, that was taken during the war, and they've you know, done a bit of colorizing and, uh, and fixing it up, uh, but uh, it was original footage. And one of the things that they showed were some of those massive rallies that uh, particularly Hitler and Stalin had uh, during the war, at the start of the war, uh, to show off how great their armies were. And, uh, you know, there were thousands of soldiers uh, marching down the street and then they were followed by the tanks and by the artillery parading through after them. Such a different picture to what we have here of Jesus, isn't it? Of course, Jesus wasn't going to come on a tank, but you would expect a great king to ride on at least a stallion, uh, maybe to have some chariots with him and his army. But that is not how Jesus comes. Jesus comes lowly. 
not just a donkey, but on the foal of a donkey. He comes like this because he wants to show that his kingdom is, uh, his kingship is completely different from other emperors and kings. This is exactly what Jesus does when he is on earth, that very first Palm Sunday. He deliberately fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah. He sends his disciples to go and find him a colt so he can sit on the back of it and arrive in Jerusalem as king, but as a humble king. Jesus doesn't arrive in Jerusalem with his army to start a revolution, to overthrow uh, the uh, Pontius Pilate from his palace or uh, the Jewish leaders from their their, uh, Sanhedrin. Jesus comes to start a revolution through his self-sacrifice, riding on a donkey, come to offer up his own life. And that's the nature of the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. It's not a kingdom that rules by force or power. It's a kingdom that grows through self-sacrifice and love. When Jesus came, when Jesus uh, gave the mission to the disciples, uh, it wasn't uh, to go uh, and make slaves of all nations. It was to go and make disciples of all nations to come and follow him because they've been cleansed uh, and because their hearts have been filled with his spirit. I mean, to remember that as we are part of his kingdom today. Uh, being part of God's kingdom doesn't mean having Christian kings or emperors or presidents or prime ministers. That's not what God's kingdom is about at all. God's kingdom is about his disciples who follow their humble king, uh, not looking to overthrow those around them, but looking to serve those around them. So we think about Zechariah's prophecy of the the great kingdom uh, that he looked forward to. Uh, We see that this kingdom has started. Uh, The king has come. Uh, The saviour has uh, given his life so that we can be cleansed of our sin and we can enter into his kingdom. Uh, We can follow the footsteps of the king who arrived in this world riding on a donkey. But as we do that, as we have a foretaste, a little taste of being in God's kingdom, uh, we don't have the final, uh, full experience of it until we still live in hope, hope of the new creation when everything and everyone will be totally part of this kingdom uh, in every way. And uh, we look forward to that day with hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your saviour, Jesus. Uh, Thank you that he came to cleanse us from sin and that he gave his life so that we could have uh, the the dirty and disfiguring sin washed away from our lives. We pray that we might trust him uh, and uh, and look to him. Uh, We thank you that he is king who uh, rides on a donkey. And we pray that as he came to serve us, uh, that we would be disciples uh, who seek to serve others. And Lord, as we do that, uh, give us hope in... uh, the fulfilment of your promises of a new kingdom, the glorious new creation, will be a a kingdom of your light uh, and your life uh, shining everywhere. And we look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen.